Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm continuing along through my early horror remakes chapter, and today I'm going to be joined by another guest, just like we had on last episode. We're going to be covering the first two Nosferatu movies and the Cat People films. Uh, To get started with this, I'm going to bring in my guest from the Phantom Galaxy podcast. It's Nathan Bartlebaugh. How are you doing, Nathan? I'm doing great, Trey. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. I'm really excited uh, to be here and talking some remakes. I did get a chance to listen to the last episode you did with Jay talking about the blob and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and, and that was a that was a lot of fun to listen to. That was a great episode. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. We're going to try to try to do a similar kind of episode here. Yeah, it's kind of been crazy because I think we kind of decided this on the spot to kind of go through these movies. You had mentioned you liked these two remakes a lot and thought they were interesting. So kind of popped up. And I like when that happens, when I can just jump on with someone kind of unexpectedly. Yeah, for sure. It is. It is nice. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, but to get started, we got a jam packed episode, I feel here. So let's go ahead and get into it. The way we're going to do this is we're going to start with the two Nosferatu films, and then we'll go ahead and get into the Cat People films after that. Um, so we're going to start with 1922's Nosferatu, the probably one of the if not the most regarded silent films as far as the horror genre goes. Would you say so, Nathan? I think that's fair. Yeah, I'm trying to think of silent films, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, maybe Mm -hmm. The Golem also spring to mind. But yeah, I would say it's probably the most well-known, particularly if you're talking mainstream. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So this was, I think I said 1922 already, directed by F.W. Murnau. It is a German film. And just a brief synopsis here is Vampire Count Orlock is interested in a new residence and in his real estate agent's young wife, F.W. Murnau's unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, Very short and to the point. I can get behind that because I think we all know the story of Dracula at this point. I think we've all seen an adaptation of Dracula in some form or another. Although that synopsis does almost sound like a soap opera. (laughs) He's interested in real estate and his neighbor's wife. Nathan, there's a there's a line I specifically made a note to, and it kind of plays into that where Count Orlock says, your wife has a lovely neck. <laughs> yeah, the warning signs abound. Oh, yeah, that was pretty good. But like it said there, though, this was an unauthorized version of Bram Stoker's Jack, Bram Stoker's Dracula, if I can talk. And it was kind of a big mess because they were sued by the estate and it led to the destruction of most of the copies of the film and really what we had was Bram Stoker's widow had you know won the case ordered the films destroyed some of the copies survived thankfully and then later on you know they were revived and we get it the way we have it today but yeah Nathan let's go ahead and get in what are your initial thoughts or anything you want to point out about Nosferatu from 1922. It's definitely a classic. It is also, in my mind, one of my it's one of my favorite horror films. It's one of my favorite representations of a vampire in film. It's also, I think it's debatable, but we're pretty certain it's probably the first iteration of a vampire mm-hmm. on film. There are a couple cases. I think there's a George Melies film where he turns into a bat for a few seconds and people say, maybe that's a vampire movie, but 
seems doubtful. This one, though, is obviously, like you said, it's an ad adaptation of Dracula. And it is funny because when you get down to let's change the names for copyright, it seems like they did it on the spot. <laughs> We're going to call this guy Hutter. You, your Count Orlock. <laughs> so I had, it had been several years since I had seen this, and I forgot about the changing of the names, other than Orlock, of course. Yeah. Um, and I get in there and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I remember this now. It's Hutter. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think it's like Eileen or something like that is the... Right, it's just uh, nonsense, sort of. It, it might. <laughs> I mean, maybe not so much, but if you're looking from a German perspective, but I'm just looking at the names, I'm like, okay, it just... You just threw those out there, huh? Uh, or like, you're right, though. It's funny because knowing Count Orlock, like as a kid, I would see this image in, you know, horror movie uh, books on horror movies. And they'd have those the stock images they threw in, you know, to kind of pad the book out. And you would see that image. And I knew even then his name, he was Count Orlock. Uh, and, and not even mm -hmm. being completely aware until I saw the movie later that it was an adaptation of Dracula. I think what that speaks to is how effective that ultimate image of the Count is when he shows up. So that's the image that dominates the movie dominates my mind when i think about it but i think when re-watching the movie particularly and being able to see it now as you mentioned like it's been a long time coming to get a a, a version that a looks good and that contains as much of the footage as exists and mm -hmm. the version i saw is about 94 minutes long which is pretty long yeah. for a yeah you know it's not metropolis long mind you but it's long for a silent film, and it gets pretty detailed into the story of Dracula, uh, including events on the ship. I'm always impressed how much of that gets built into this narrative here, because that tends to be something that's kind of skipped over a lot. You know, in the Dracula story, we want to hurry up and we want to get to the drama that's there. Visually, I think this is just an amazing film, and it it would have been amazing upon its construction, but the silent film, the quality of the film, and the way it looks certainly adds something to it for me. I think I love this movie as much for its limitations because of the way it was created, uh, you know, than if it had been perfectly done, if it had been, and we will get to talk about that when the remake, where it's a little bit more like, Oh, this is what I expect a movie to look like. But the mm -hmm. way that coach moves up the, the kind of wooded oh, yes. hillside and it's moving like, like you would so expect fast. blocks in a Gumby <laughs> cartoon to move. It's creepy. You know, I look at them like that is, is. nightmarish. Like, we were talking about I was, Jay's new podcast. You're talking about that Jay's uh, new horror podcast. They had, mm -hmm. they were talking about a movies that if you could show a movie to somebody and say, this movie, here's a movie, here's a horror movie. And will it freak you out or will it scare you and forget language boundaries, forget context, forget everything. If I showed you to this movie without any additional context, would you be kind of freaked out by it? In some ways, I think this movie works. The images of the vampire when he's climbing the stairs or when he's just looking out the window at her back at, I want to say at Mina, but obviously not Mina no. <laughs> <laughs> and not Elizabeth either. But, you know, he's looking out the window across the way to her or when he's creeping up the stairs and the way he moves and the hand movements. And again, Shrek, who is an actor, you know, we know so little about him that later they make a movie that postulates that maybe he was the vampire. <laughs> <laughs> they just hired him. Uh, yeah. That imagery is so effective that it sort of trumps everything else. But I think it's an amazing film and it tells its story in a very clean sort of way. So it retains shock and creepiness all these years later. Yeah. And those are some good points. And I'll I'll say right off the bat, I've always kind of struggled with getting into silent movies as much as I can. The, um, you know, the talkies, as they say, as the kids say. Um, <laughs> but this one. 
it speaks to kind of all the challenge. You were talking about how they made this movie and its challenges. It was low budget for the time anyway. You know, it was this low budget ripoff of Dracula, essentially, where they were trying to skirt around things to not get sued. It didn't work. And it's just a miracle that the film looks the way it does. But to your your point, that carriage scene is freaky. And for my money, this is the most unsettling, I think, is the word I want to use. The most unsettling vampire I think I've seen in a film, really. Yes. As I was thinking last night, there's just something. I don't know if it's like an uncanny valley type thing where it just something looks off with Count Orlock. But it's just very unsettling every time I see Count Orlock on the screen. Yeah, and you know, I think what's interesting is that really goes back, the image we see here, and you have to remember that vampires as a concept did exist before Bram Stoker. They just weren't as refined and, uh, you know, kind of pointed down, or I want to say staked down, and I thought, no, that's that's not in good taste. <laughs> but, you know, he, he takes it and he he blocks it in with, okay, these are the things that affect them and these are the rules they're they're bound to but vampires as a concept existed before that it goes back to this idea it's a corpse it's a corpse that's come back to mm-hmm. life very rarely though really in in vampire films does it look like a corpse that's come back to life it either looks like a you know a, a guy wearing a pirate shirt with all the ruffles and stuff or it looks like uh it you know it sparkles or it looks like some sort of bat you know they go back to the idea that there's there's like a rodent DNA in there or something. And you get a little bit with the fangs here, but this looks yeah. all for all the world. Like this is, this was dead and it's back alive and it's been, it's been back to life for it's past its sell by date at this point. And I think yes. that's what comes across is he is ancient and tired and still ready to go after his neighbor's wife though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's a great point. What you're saying, because we think about things like if we're thinking of, Isle of the Dead um, from Luton, which is that Vorvalica legend in Greece. Or you've got, and I cannot remember, um, from Black Sabbath, Eastern European. Yes, yes. You've had similar things all throughout time, really, those kind of legends. But I, I don't know. I just really appreciate the look of it. I don't know how they did it. It probably very cheaply and thrown together. (laughs) But it just looks amazing. And I think that's really the the standout for me in this movie, as it should be probably, is Count Orlock. Yeah, for sure. And I think that in a lot of ways, he dominates this film in a way that none of the other vampires, even, even Dracula, Bela Lugosi, even though he's so much the iconic image, there's other things going on in that movie. Here, he really is sort of the centerpiece. And you know, and kind of smartly, I think, Murnau, once he gets there to, to Count Orlock, he does allow it to sort of pivot around the vampire. And even really before he shows up, you know, you know, you're headed there. I kind of like in both of these adaptations that you get this sort of elongated travel to see Orlock. There's a buildup to get to him. And the buildup takes you through the countryside in a way that starts out not not superimposing. And then gets a little more imposing and a little bit more foreboding and a little bit more foreboding as you go along, as you get close to the castle. It's not all gothic, crazy imagery right up front. It kind of takes its time getting there and you feel like you've already gone on a kind of spooky journey by the time you get there, which sort of makes uh, sense because I don't know, there is a short story out there by Stoker. That's almost like the prelude to Dracula called Dracula's guest that specifically deals with almost that voyage and that journey to Dracula's castle. And so if that's kind of captured here in those opening uh, sequences. 
Yeah, and we'll talk much more about that once we get into the remake, because I feel like the way they shot that is just so... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It's so... like These aren't... Uh, <laughs> the journey to Dracula's castle isn't for impatient viewers, I feel like. That very indulgent and very... <laughs> but I think they work, and I think they work to set the tone. And you have to descend into madness, right? Yes, yeah. One thing I was thinking, did you... um? Notice, I don't think I caught this before when I had watched this, but there was a line when they're in the, um, when Hutter, I guess it is, is in the bar before he's going out to uh, head to Dracula's castle. And the guy makes a comment to him about the werewolf comes out at this hour or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that specifically because my daughter looks at me betrayed and says, I thought this was about vampires. I was like, <laughs> settle down. Oh, that reminds me of when I was watching, um, few episodes ago when I was watching Paul Nashie's Night of the Werewolf and it's basically like vampires for it's about Elizabeth Bathory but there is a werewolf right you're like werewolf question mark (laughs) (laughs) no that's a good point I was very thrown off by that I was like what and I think they show a little and I don't know if it's a wolf it looks kind of like a wolf but it's a hyena (laughs) it's a hyena (laughs) yes because that was the next thing that my daughter was uh was livid about you know she's seven and she's all indignant she's like it's a hyena I know calm down (laughs) <laughs> like like Peter Falk and the C- Princess Bride, just settle down, wait <laughs> wait for it. Yeah i I don't know how much. First of all, like that big abandoned building that was next door to to Hutter. Would you buy that thing? No, not at all. But then you know what? It's like it was just waiting for him to move in. You know, it's like you know what this yeah. needs a creepy dead vampire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I don't know how much I've got to say about this, Nathan, because I think it's just like it's such a well-told story. And I think my main thing in this is just how great Orlock is. What what other points do you want to talk about for Nosferatu? Well, and I think, yeah, I think you're right, because it is one of the things that's great about the film is I think it speaks for itself. And it is Mm -hmm. it's a there's going to be movies we talk about tonight that I think are very much full of subtext and con and and created in a context that allows us to really discuss them you could really discuss mm-hmm. Nosferatu and I think you can bring all those things to the forefront but I think what is so effective is that it is like a nightmare you're in yes. it and when you're in it even when it's slow you are transfixed I, I the way I feel anyway I mean yep. watching this movie from 1922 I and and my kids were not uh, interested in picking up our phones and looking off for a few minutes which you know as a critic, I try not to do that, but sometimes you find yourself, you know, your your attention strays. Even in the slow moments here, I was transfixed by what by what was happening. And I think that that's the thing to keep in mind here is that if you haven't seen the film, I encourage you to go out and see it. It is just a simple retelling of Dracula, but what it does is it keeps the focus on those nightmarish elements, those imagery. It's more about the imagery that Bram Stoker created mm-hmm. and the iconography that Stoker created. Then the characters that he created, because I, I mean, you're probably with me on this. Characters don't stand out here, you know, even even with names no. like Hutter and whatnot. They don't no. They don't come to the forefront. You're not particularly concerned on whether they uh, defeat Orlock or not. In fact, Orlock is so interesting. You're perfectly happy if he takes the entire village with yeah. him, you know, the city out. Absolutely. With him. Uh, I, the last thing I want to say about this, it will definitely play into what we talked about. What I appreciate about this film that I don't think finds its way into many other vampire films is the concept of the plague. In fact, the concept of, of, of the plague coming with the vampire is more prevalent here 
than I think it is in the Universal Dracula films. You don't really get that idea. We know the Dracula's kind of flitting about and biting people, and then therefore there is a rash of sickness, but you don't have this idea of vampire as a pestilence, which yeah. I think comes through in this film and is unique to this film and the remake because they make that such a part of the story. Like, I think that the concept, when you see Dracula turn into a bat or or like a wolf or something in the in the thirties Dracula. And then on, when you get Luke Evans doing it, it's like, these are superpowers, right? Like this is a cool thing that Dracula gets to do by virtue of being a vampire where here it's like, this is part of the curse. You are eternally tied to scavengers and to predators and to things that carry plague and disease like this. You will always be tied to this. It's an anchor. It's not like a blessing. Yep, absolutely. And I, you're right. They make those very focal points of the films. But, oh, and two things that popped up. We'd be remiss to talk about one, and that's the Ger- German expressionism, really, that we get. That's their like art style during this time. And you get those weird kind of um, artistic kind of views. Like there's a, a scene of Orlock, and he's slowly coming through a door. And in the background, you just see the floor like kind of it's so small and it's slanted. And yeah, that really played a big part in the German feel at this time in their film and their art and everything. And then the other thing is I just thought of a line and it was, I I just really love that first exchange between Hutter or really all the exchanges between Hutter and Orlock when Orlock says something like, Oh, I, I tend to sleep all day. Can't you stay up a little longer? You just got here or something like that. And I would say honestly, and I don't even have to ask you Nathan, cause I know what your answer is, but I, I think this is a must watch. Even if you're not, into silent films, even if it's not going to come away as one of your favorites, I think this is definitely something you have to watch at least once. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I agree, and I would I would add this one like caveat to it, not a caveat, but this one recommendation. If you watch it, don't watch it on YouTube or or in a small screen or on your computer. If you can mm-hmm. watch it on the biggest screen you can locate, you know. In addition to that, I highly recommend Kino put out a two disc uh blu-ray set of this mm-hmm. and has a german version and the english language version they've cleaned the movie up spectacularly i would have never expected it to look as good as it does and you've got this colored you know the 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 film is colored in certain areas so you know you've got mm-hmm. it, it looks yellow in places and blue in other places and yes. that really pops yep. when you clean the movie up and then the score that they've got this refurbished score attached to the film i think with silent films the score it's not everything but it's so important that you've got that playing loudly and clearly and things like that. I actually got a chance to see this movie with a live um, orchestra, actually, at the Senator Theater. The theater I sent you a picture of the other day. And yeah. that was a an amazing film experience. And that's what I recommend for anyone who watches this. This is a, this is a sensory kind of thing. It's about the images. It's about the ambiance and the mood. Find a big big screen to watch it on and get your speakers turned up and watch it that way and just kind of, you know, turn the lights off and let it like, uh, let it take you over. Cause I think it will. Yeah. And two notes on that. First, I think that Kino Lorber might be the version they have on shutter because it was also 94 minutes and I did notice the colorization, which is very well done. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that Kino print is on shutter. And the second thing I was talking to, um, dark Mark the other day and he was planning to have like a hundred, 100-year anniversary party for Nosferatu this year, so which was pretty cool, but he was kind of debating on what do I do for the score? Do I try to, like, kind of recreate, like, a score environment? And I know that said 
you said that was a big part of you seeing it at a theater was the score and the orchestra that was playing. So, yeah, because it, it, it does. It enhances the what, and it's perfect because one of the problems I've had as I've seen films with a live uh, orchestral accompaniment is that a unfortunate side effect is that the orchestra music does drown out the dialogue. So mm-hmm. usually just try to see a movie you've seen a hundred times. It doesn't matter anyway, right? <laughs> so right. Jurassic Park with an orchestra was fine. I have that movie mostly memorized. <laughs> uh, but, you know, with a silent film, it's no, no worries, right? <laughs> right, so. right. Absolutely. No, that's a great recommendation. But yeah, so is that all? Is that all on 1922 Nosferatu for you? Yeah, I, I think so. Other than to just throw in that recommendation for people to also go out and check out the 2000 film um, that Elias Merhesh did. Uh, what was it? Um, Shadow of the Shadow Vampire. of the Vampire. Yeah, where where Willem Dafoe plays Max Schreck and John Malkovich is Murnau hiring this vampire, this moldering vampire. Uh, it, it's a great companion piece to this film, and I think mm-hmm. a great horror movie in its own right. No, that's a great recommendation. I had you mentioned that earlier and I was going to say something, but I completely forgot. So thank you for bringing that back up. Let's go ahead and shift into the remake. I'm going to go over a couple of things. Then I'm going to ask you a couple questions, Nathan, that I asked Jay and we'll see how that goes. But really, so it took really Nosferatu until the 60s and 70s to be back in like mass circulation because they had to wait until Bram Stoker's widow had passed away and when the copyright had expired. But when it did, it was kind of, it really, I guess I want to say, it really had an impact on Werner Herzog. He had a great admiration for the film and called it the greatest German film, in his opinion. So as soon as Dracula had entered the public domain in 1979, Herzog proceeded to go ahead with his remake, and now he could use the proper character names for the film. And I think one other note is that he definitely wanted this to be an homage to the original film. And I think he did a good job in that. Nathan, now what I'm going to ask you on this one, do you think this remake needed to be made? Do you think this is a there's a purpose for this remake? So I think the, the answer there is, is maybe a little twofold, because I think that in one level, it, it's 1979. No, it didn't need to be remade. However, there's probably still a question of how many people were able to get a hold of or see Nosferatu in a reasonable form in 1979. So on one hand, if you're a filmmaker who loves this movie and wants to sort of pay homage to it, remaking Nosferatu in 1979 may ensure that some people are going to see this as a fresh, brand new movie. You know, I think now we look back on it and realize that, hey, we can pick up and that's the, usually the the, the uh, argument against remakes, right? Is, hey, I can just turn around and watch, you know, original Texas Chainsaw Massacre right now. I don't need to watch the new one on Netflix. Right. I, I realize it's a sequel. <laughs> but, you know, in the term of a remake, yeah, maybe there's better examples, you know. But the point being, why do I need to visit this new thing? I've got the old thing right here next to me. That wasn't necessarily the case with Nosferatu, mm-hmm. I think, in 1979. And the other big case that you can make in this situation is that you're also adapting it into color. You're taking it and you're bringing it into color, whether Nosferatu needs color. And it's also mm-hmm. you're, you're bringing it into sound. So you're bringing it into a new dimension either way. So I think you could probably give Herzog some credit right up front that did we need to have, did, was, this, was there something lacking in the story and the images and the way it was told? No, there wasn't. But I think there's a case it can be a solid yes on that front. The other is that Herzog's the kind of filmmaker that 
and I think that's why I wanted to choose this remake and the other one we're going to talk about. This is a this isn't sort of a case where this movie seems simply springs up because hey, you know what's popular, kids? Nosferatu. <laughs> you know what's going to make money, kids? Nosferatu. This is the example of a a very talented filmmaker who is up to this point has been very esoteric and very singular in the movies he's brought to the screen. And he has a vision and a reason to do it that I think goes beyond homage. I think he wants to explore all of those ideas and concepts that Nosferatu put in his brain when he saw it in the way in which he can, he can do so. And so as an expression of, of art, I think, yeah, I think that there was a reason for it. Was there a cultural reason for it? I think you could also make the case. Yes. Yeah. And Nathan, I'll go over a couple things here and we'll get much more into this in my next episode when I'm kind of back by myself, but there's a couple things. First of all is the availability. And back then, you can't just go and see a movie. Well, maybe it's getting better by the late 70s, but you're not going to just be able to see any movie you want. So it's like you're saying not everyone has access to those earlier movies. You'd have to go to a movie theater that was playing it to see it, right? Yeah. So I think that leads some credence. And I think there's a very good case for this just with the introduction of sound alone. You know, it doesn't always work out when you try to take a silent film and add sound to it later on with a remake. But I think the other important part and a big part of a lot of these early remakes is the director Herzog is a big fan of the original and really loves the original and really wants to kind of make it stand up to the original is his full intention to do. It's not kind of a cash grab. It's not something that they're going to do to just get a project done. Yeah, and I think an interesting angle that I thought about as you look at what he's done here as we get into the film. And and that's true later when we talk about the, the cat people. The, I think the difference here when you talk about a director, you hear all the time, I think that a director has to say that or no one's going to let him make the movie, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a big, big fan. I think, though, that big fan here means that one of the things Herzog's excited for is the opportunity to play in the sandbox of these ideas. Like I said before, the sandbox of this movie, he gets to play around with it. That's not necessarily true of everyone who says, I love this movie, and they try so hard to be respectful to the movie to the point that they don't bring anything new, and it just kind of dries and crumbles. I think, you know, it has its issues, but you can even see in a movie like uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, he, he lets it go on for too long. Oh, yeah. But you can tell that there's a, there's, a, there's a director in love with that movie and wants to play around with what was special about it. And in some... In a, in some areas, comes up with some special things himself. So I yeah. think that's the difference. There, there's a desire to get in there and and bring what you have to it. But now I think when we when we have someone who says, "I love this movie," the desire is not to hurt it. So you, you're playing with it with kid gloves, and in a way, you're not interacting with it at all. Yeah, and there's it's like you're saying there's a big difference between Peter Jackson's King Kong and that 1975, 76, whenever that was version of King Kong, right? Is that the year, Nathan? Am I thinking the right? right? Uh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, seventy. Yeah, yeah, like the the, the Dino De Laurentiis one, yeah, which yeah. I, which I have a soft spot for. Too, yeah, <laughs> oh, I can see that. I can understand that. But but I get your your point is well taken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think there's there's definitely a different level here. I mean, when you're talking about something like the the thing on a general, you know, standpoint. Carpenter initially said he had wanted nothing to do with it because he didn't think he could outdo the original. You know, and that sounds weird, like looking back at it now that Carpenter thought he couldn't outdo the original because he's made one of the, you know, biggest cult classics, I feel like, of all time. But 
no, I absolutely am all in on this remake. I think there was a good reason to do this one. So I'm not going to get into a synopsis if you're okay with that, since we kind of just, I think it's the same basic story. We did story. a synopsis already, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Do you want to uh, go ahead and just start off whatever your high-level feelings are on Nosferatu the Vampire? So I th- this is a very, it, it's interesting because the plot is, as you described it, uh, almost exactly the same. With one significant difference, mm-hmm. I, I think it's significant. It's really just adjusted, we'll talk about it in a minute, that I really like a lot. But I think that what's interesting is, I don't know if this Nosferatu from 79, in fact, I would dare to say, I come down on the side that it isn't really a horror film. Uh, not in the way that the 22 movie is. You know, I, I would say the 22 movie is scarier than this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this movie's trying to be scary. I think this is trying to be much more of a meditation on death. I think it's meant to have feelings of dread, but it's also meant to have feelings of awe. And I love the movie, but I think that it is, I think it could honestly be a bit of a challenge potentially for someone who comes into this wanting a horror film wanting a kind of scary movie or even a movie that's on the level of say the Franklin Jello Dracula that was made around the same time frame where it employs all of the things you want to see in a Dracula film. This movie is a Werner. It's a Werner Herzog movie through and through, you know, once you get into it, you realize that. And uh, Roger Ebert was a big fan of this movie. And I think that, you know, he, he points out that Herzog, when he looks at nature, he sees a kind of savage beauty and an awe to it. And that comes through here. It came through in movies like Fitzcarraldo and things like that. And it comes through here in the way he presents the vampire and the way he presents the journey to the castle. The journey to the castle in this movie is beautiful mm-hmm. and in, impressive and awe-inspiring. The same problem, I think, exists in this film and the other one is that you just bounce off the characters. I think the problem is, in this film, that's a little more detrimental because you weren't pulled in to the same level of... Um, uh, it's not as evocative as a 22 movie as far as like thrills and and the story telling goes. I, but I think that that's almost purposeful. A Herzog is letting you kind of marinate with the images. I love I watching this movie. I remember why I love so much when a director just lets a shot linger for mm-hmm. a little bit, particularly when he brings Kinski in. Kinski is very, very weird in this movie, although maybe only a shade weirder than he is in any other movie. Right. Yeah. He's a guy of Kinski. And you get the idea that, you know, Ebert had said, too, that when he had talked to Herzog, that Herzog had said as a kid, Kinski lived in the same apartment building as him. And he said when he saw him, he knew that his destiny was to make movies and for Klaus Kinski to be in them. <laughs> and so you kind of see, you know, it's almost like he would have made this movie. Why? Why did there need to be a new Nosferatu? Because Klaus Kinski was still around to star as Dracula <laughs> or Orlog or whatever. And I think his performance is so good that it kind of regardless of what else anyone thinks about the film i think it's so good that it justifies herzog's decision to make the movie but it's not particularly scary i think his he looks weird Mm -hmm. he looks more like bucktooth gopher when you first see him he's an oddity he's very eccentric of the way he talks i love though he gets in the line that's similar to the children of the night making their music you know he gets some of that in there the the way he behaves and particularly later as the story goes on and he does go after Jonathan's wife, I think that all of that stuff works. The other change that I really love is thematically and how the story does hinge on the fact that in this version, in every other version, the, the Elizabeth, Mina, whoever, whoever she ends up being mm-hmm. called, 
you know, whoever she was called in the 22 film, she gets to be the primary means by which the vampire is defeated here. Everyone else is essentially ineffectual. You know, she sees the situation. The plague element is huge here and the rat stuff is disgusting. Uh, you know imagery wise that is overwhelming to me that's what i think when i think of this movie is him walking along the street tonight and all those rats pouring out and it's just you know it's pretty intense and freaky looking reminds me of old medieval engravings but her what she does ultimately and where that story goes and then the last little sting that kind of you know (laughs) the final end of the movie that herzog adds in is is pretty cool but I love that aspect. I don't know how much you want to talk spoilery or not about it, but her arc in the film and how it lines up with what's going on with Dracula, I thought was one of the best uh, new creative inventions in the in the movie. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and I'm okay. So let me let me unwrap this because you we went into a lot there, Nathan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. So absolutely agree with you on Orlock as far as the look. It's definitely much more goofy here, and it's not anywhere near as sinister in the 22 version. So you're absolutely right about there. As far as a horror film, I didn't think about it, but you're probably right on that account, too. I don't think that much matters to um, you or I, Yeah. Uh, yeah. but I know some horror fans, that's pretty important. Yes. And I think you had described this to me. You were saying it was kind of like a nature documentary at points, right? You kind of felt like it was that. I thought so. Particularly in the beginning, you see little cats frolicking on the windowsill and stuff. Yeah, and then you got you have his journey. You have um, Harker's journey to Dracula's castle, and you just get these sweeping shots of this beautiful landscape, and you get this grand score playing behind it. And you see, like, cliffs with, like, water running down them, and it's very... <laughs> I wanted very a Terrence beautiful. Malick over-narration. You know, <laughs> God, I am so small. You know what I mean? Like, something <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Who am I to be selling real estate to? Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) That's pretty good. But yeah, I think so when you had you had alluded to there was a little bit of a a change or a a change in between this and the 1922 film. Are you um, kind of referring to the way that Harker is used in this? Well, the way that Harker is and also, uh, yeah, both of the Harkers, the way Lucy is used, particularly Lucy, the way that Lucy becomes, I think, a more prominent character yes. here yep. and that Jonathan is used in a different way in, in in kind of the completely opposite where he's kind of sidelined by the story and then ultimately brought back in to yeah. diminish what yeah. Lucy does. Yeah, so let's not go into the the very ending of this, yeah. but I think it's fair to say that he's on, he's like out of commission for a lot of this. He's a vegetable. Oh yeah. Essentially. Yes. Yes. Basically <laughs> right. He is not in, he's even more sidelined than Keanu Reeves was in the Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> if that can be believed. Yeah. No. And so you had mentioned something earlier about characters though. And I really do like, I like Lucy in this film. Actually. I don't know that there's any character building to justify it, but I like her from even from her look with the dark makeup yes. um, and how she's changed in every scene. Like you can tell there's a scene on the beach where she just looks disheveled. Like the further this thing goes on with her husband not being around. Yeah. And I, there's one particular shot and it's in like a town square and there's coffins out there and she's walking and she's wearing a cloak and there's this very high up high angle shot and that shot just kind of stuck with me through the film. I love that shot. It's yes. kind of after the whole rats thing. but uh, And there's also kind of like a dinner scene out there. <laughs> there too as well. There, There <laughs> is. It's very weird. 
<laughs> no, her character, her character, I think, is the best character in the film. And I, and it wasn't so much complaining about the way they're presented, just that as characters, they're still, they're still not essentially very deep, you know, uh, between the two films. Yeah, no, that's fair. And again, I, I just really do like that kind of little twist on it. Now, <laughs> do I like the very ending? I don't know. It kind of isn't as gratifying, but I, I don't think I mind it either. It's nice to have something new kind of thrown in. Uh, yeah, I didn't mind it either. It felt a little bit. It, it didn't feel particularly Herzog-esque, though. I don't know if you felt that way. I felt as though. I, I mean, me. You know, it just seems like it seems like something that someone trying to be a little bit clever. And I and I think in a lot of Herzog's films, he always seems to kind of try to shy away from that. You know, mm-hmm. like that the naturalism that he demonstrates in the earlier scenes. Like it's, but because of his naturalism and the way he actually handles the ending, I think it works. You know, it isn't like a gotcha. It's just like the natural progression. Absolutely. And I, I think, think that it fits. works. And yeah. the, the last shot is so cool looking. It doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, oh, I don't think we even mentioned like Van Helsing is in this and does next to nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant to make the point. And even Van Helsing, he's sort of a senile old man. Like, yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. A couple of things I had here, and this kind of goes back to our like, your nature documentary comment one, this is a very like slow brooding film, like you've talked about, but there's so many stretches where we don't even have any dialogue. Um, I don't know if this is Herzog trying to be like true to the original format of where it was a silent film, but there are just long stretches where we've got nothing and it just allows you to kind of get immersed into the world. I don't know if you felt the same way there. I did. And it's interesting because I think if you were a filmmaker or not filmmaker, if you're a, if you're a film fan, and maybe if you're a younger film fan, it's quite possible you may only think of Herzog as doing documentaries, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, he, he, his, but his career as a documentarian was really much a later thing for the most part. You know, at the time he's made this film, has he made any or many documentaries? I mean, he Fitzcarraldo and, and uh, movies like that were, you know, narrative features, and this one is too. So I think you see that coming through here that he's he's got that interest in again the land the the earth and and the relationship between that and and the characters that he's so interested in it that he doesn't need to he doesn't care what these people are saying to each other right and i think that's what's kind of coming through and i i think it adds tremendously that's what makes this movie i think we talked about was this a necessary remake you could make the case yes or no maybe going into it but i think the finished result shows that this is a very different film than the original maybe the most different movie i've seen in the sense of a movie this different from the original yet essentially keeping almost beat for beat the same story and look and design of the characters like you look at john carpenter's thing it's a very different film from the thing from another world, you know, mm-hmm. uh, lots of the, the fly is essentially very different, Extremely but this different. one is so similar in its structure and yet feels so different. You're absolutely right there. And one thing I don't necessarily like just a beat for beat remake, but like you said, it just has a different kind of feel to it. And it just from like, Orlock is completely different. He's in all the same situations, but he's a completely different character really here. He's sad. Yeah. So I the thing that I and here's here's my biggest thing, especially today. If you're gonna make a remake, 
you have to, in my opinion, kind of take the weakest element of the original or a weak element of the original, and you've got to rectify that, right? Yes. And there are some that we see that that do that. Really what I'd love to see, Nathan, and no one's ever going to do this, Not people aren't going to sign up for this, but I'd really like to see an average middle-of-the-road movie remade by a capable director. And take what you're made, speaking my language, <laughs> take what's mediocre at the beginning and kind of refine it with you've got the base. Let's refine this thing and let's make it good. But right. Even a mess of a movie that's not great. You know, like it's like, what, what can we what can we do to fix this one up a little bit? You know, yeah, that's my stance on it. But, you know, no one's no producer ever is going to go for that. Anyone out there? Super Mario Brothers is still ha- hanging out waiting for you. <laughs> They're making a new one with Chris Pratt apparently voicing Mario, which is... I bet you it's not about dinosaurs buried at the center of the Earth with their own civilization. No. Is that Dennis Hopper in that yeah, movie? Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my complete critic cred. But I would love to see someone attempt it. Like, I don't know if I would or not, but... It... You know, it's a likable enough cast, just <laughs> not a great movie. It's crazy. It's very crazy. This, but I... I'm curious what you th- what was your overall feeling though? I, I you may be about to ask me. Are we the, which one you prefer? Yeah. So, and I got to I'm going to say one more thing because this kind of ties what the two groups of films we're talking about tonight kind of unintentionally, but I feel like one thing I did not get to my notes was the shadow or the shadows and the use of shadows that Herzog uses especially in Orlock's castle. And I think yes. that harkens very much back to that style that Val Luton kind of pioneered with his great usage of shadows. It's very, you don't often notice shadows in films, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but I absolutely did. Um, Especially early on in this movie. As far as like, which one I prefer, I don't know. These two, honestly, Nathan, for me are about even they're about even to me. I like them for different reasons. I like the 22 version because of Orlock and how, you know, unsettling and disturbing he is to me. And just how unsettling and disturbing the film on a whole is to me. But I like this one, too, for the changes it makes and for the imagery and everything that it puts out its own kind of unique imagery. So I don't really know if I can choose between these two because they are very close to me. I don't usually for me in remakes, it's one or the other is very much the favorite. This one, I don't know. I just don't know. And I know that's a cop out. But yeah, but I know which I'm going to ask you this, but I already know which one do you like better, Nathan? (laughs) Well, you know. To your point, I think I think that's a fair point, particularly with this this one, because I said that the the 22 version is one of my all time favorite horror movies. It'd be in my top 10. And that still stands. But I agree with you in that I'm not sure which one, you know, as a horror film, I prefer the 22 version. Mm-hmm. But as a meditation on death, as an exploration of what it might mean to live forever, way past the point you want to live forever anymore. What's captured in that Orlock performance with, with Kinski? Like he, I don't, there aren't many movies to capture that feeling of the vampire at a point that he does, like you realize what a curse this really is. Like the horror of this version is in all that tired, ancient sadness you see in his face and in his existence and what he's become. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't really exist in the 22 version. So, you know, I like the Nosferatu 22 a little more as a horror film, but as the kind of art house drama that he's trying to make, this is a, this is a, I think close to a, a one of Herzog's masterpieces as well yep. in his filmography. So I think they're, 
they're both great films and i think that what's cool is i don't necessarily put them in the same camp they're not competing against each other for horror film and nosferatu certainly not a slow meditation on the nature of man's mortality no but I, yeah that's perfect i think these two films are so unique while telling the same story like you said and they complement each other yeah i think, I think yeah. they do so i think you might as well make it a triple feature and watch these two and you know shadow of the vampire as well because i think all three of them would work well together I thought you were going to say love at first bite. No, I'm just uh, <laughs> once, once bitten. <laughs> once bitten, yeah. Once, <laughs> once bitten and love at first bite are the double feature there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And they're, and neither one, I mean, it, you know, they're long, but they're not, you know, they're not excessively. They're about an hour and a half, I think. One's long for a, uh, uh, how long is Herzog's movie? I, I don't even remember now. Uh, I, I think it's I, around an hour 50. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's headed in two hours, but neither film is over two hours long. No. You can watch them in the t- time it takes to watch a single Lord of the Rings movie. So. <laughs> An hour and seven minutes is yeah, how long okay. that one is. So, yeah, so just about an hour 50. Um, yeah, but I think that's, is that all you kind of had to say with these yeah. Nosferatu mm-hmm. films? Awesome. Um, so I've been running some polls and you've been voting over there on social media this this month. So I thought I'd pull those out now, especially for Nosferatu, and see kind of where everyone weighed in and what they thought were the the better of the films um so over on the facebook group looks like we had 11 votes for 1922 and two votes for 1979 and i definitely voted on that before i rewatched these <laughs> yeah <laughs> well I, I think a lot of these i think most of the ones i've ran so far are um lopsided and then over on twitter um nosferatu 22 came in with 71 percent of the vote and 79 came in with 29 percent of the vote so Pretty big blowouts there. I think those. It's funny that this and cat people. I think were the ones that got the lesser of the votes because I'll I'll go back if you don't mind, Nathan. I'll give the results of kind of the films I talked about with Jay here before we kind of segue into cat people. Yeah. And invasion of the body snatchers. To my surprise, because Jay and I are both in the camp of the original. Um, over on Facebook, we had eighteen to six favoring nineteen seventy eight, and over on. Twitter, we had 73% to 27% favoring 78. Yeah. And I, I to, admittedly, I fall into that camp, but I'm also the camp that that the 78 version is just so remarkably well done. Uh, and it was also probably the version that a lot of us saw that are there maybe in these age brackets as a kid. But I am a huge fan of the 50s version as well. It's an excellent movie. No, I don't think I don't think I understood because Jade said it on the show, but I don't think I understood just how well loved the 78 version was. I don't think I did either until the past few years of really starting to kind of walk in these horror circles and stuff and realize that because I always I always thought of it as a very sort of underrated film or a film that maybe not mm-hmm. a lot. It's one of the reasons I want to talk about the two movies tonight is even the originals. I mean, everyone knows Nosferatu and I think Cat People has gained in recognition over the years, but I do think that they're their remakes. I think one of the reasons maybe not many people voted for the Herzog movies. I wonder if many people have seen the Herzog movie. I think that's the case. And I honestly, I think the 82 cat people, when I search cat people in Google, 82 comes up first. And that just yeah. infuriates me. <laughs> I like, and that's not because I don't like 82, but we'll get it. We'll get into our thoughts on cat. Because people. Natasha Kinski. <laughs> that's exactly and the search it. Engine, search I wasn't in the images shirt search. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. No, no, I get, I think our buddy Brian Scott had said that he hadn't watched either cat people. 
So that was an interesting take, but I I'm think you're fix right. that, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with his taste. I know he would love, I think, the 82 yeah, version. Yeah. But yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. With those are two underseen as the remakes, but I think the originals even, you know, people talk about Nosferatu a lot, but do people how many people are gonna go back in our horror community and go check out the silent error films? Yeah, and I, I think that and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these is kind of re to, to cast a light on it, because I can I can tell you that particularly that film is a horror fan. If you were to buy it, stream it, you know, get a copy of it and watch it tonight. I really don't think you'd be disappointed. You know, you got to right. adjust your expectations. If you, now, if exactly. you hear people speak words then yeah, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> but I mean, otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. But let's uh, so let's close this off and then move to cat people. We had the blob movies that we also covered. And this is. Probably so with the 88 blob came in at 15 to five um, on Facebook and everyone Twitter. It was 78 percent to 22. So I fell into that camp. I don't know which one you lean towards, Nathan. I like the both. I I love the original blob. And actually, for the same reason, I heard Jay. It sounded like a kind of silly reason. But, you know, this new blob is all tentacly and and, and extra gloopy and he, he, he deteriorates people. Mm-hmm. And the old one's just a like a hunk of chewing gum that rolls over you. That's just so weird to me. <laughs> and like, it's weirder. And I like it for that weirdness. I also have to admit that when I saw the 88 film, I think I was in the third or fourth grade and it just sort of horrified me. Like it was like too much in the moment I saw it. I was watching horror movies, but, and honestly, I remember what the two movies we rented were Phantasm 2 and The Blob. Phantasm 2 I loved it. It didn't freak me out, but the blob, those scenes of it absorbing and dissolving people were just a little too much. And uh, particularly given some of the people that absorbs and dissolves as a fourth grader, I was sort of like freaked. It just flipped me out. I don't know why I enjoyed it. And I enjoy it now as a fun B movie, but I think there's always that association of like, it was just a little too much in that very moment. (laughs) No, I absolutely get that because that's, those effects in that movie are pretty, pretty hardcore. They're gnarly. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. And Shawnee Smith. I mean, I can totally see, you know, that does kind of tip the scales. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that was it for me. But <laughs> no, they're both fun B movies. But yeah, let's go ahead and jump into kind of shift over to cat people. Now, I think we had mentioned I'm not going to talk a whole lot about cat people. If you want to hear me ramble on about cat people for 45 minutes. Um, you can go back to the first episode of the the series, but I definitely want your takes on it, and I'm very interested in how it com- how we compare it to the remake. Let me go ahead and pull up a quick synopsis, although if I remember right, I don't know if this synopsis is quick on Letterboxd. Um, no, it's not too bad. A Serbian fashion designer, Irina Dubrovny, and American marine engineer Oliver Reed meet in Central Park, fall in love, and marry after a brief courtship. But Arena won't consummate the union for fear that she will turn into a panther compelled to kill her lover, pursuant to a belief harbored by her home village. This one came out in 42 and was directed by Jacques Turner, produced by the legend Val Luton. And Nathan, why don't you go ahead and give me your thoughts on 1942's Cat People? This is another one that honestly is one of my all-time favorites. This is definitely in the top 10 horror movies for me. I love it. Now, I and it is not one. A lot of times with many of the older films, they're films that I saw growing up or saw. 
as a kid. And I did not see this. In fact, I didn't see this until after I was married. It's funny. I think probably not that long after we were married. And it was a kind of a fun thing about a month or two after being married for my wife and I to watch this movie. <laughs> these, <laughs> these people are having all these sort of marital woes over the non-consummation of their marriage. And they're like, see, you know, but no, no worries. We're, we're good. We, we got past that hurdle. But, uh, I love the film. I think it is so striking. It is so inventive in its use visually, what it does visually, what it does emotionally and psychologically. This is a short film. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is not a very long movie, and it incorporates so much, I feel like, in its running time that it would be easy to have a three-hour podcast about, uh, what, (laughs) the 79-minute movie or however long? 73, I think it was when I looked at it. 73 minutes. I mean... The they really get in here and they create this world and these characters and it's it's interesting it's scary at points I think it's legitimately tension filled it, it places and it jumps all around and yet for my money honestly I know that when Luton was was getting this made you know and and sort of the way it's being pitched is studios looking for a transformation movie on the level of the Wolfman mm-hmm. and. He gives them this, and I'm sure that this is not what they were expecting. I'm going to go on the record as saying I think this is a better film than The Wolfman, than the the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman movie, uh, the Universal film. But and now that being said, I love, I adore that film. I love, that was one of my uh, early monster movie memories, watching him transform into that werewolf. But I think in a cat people film where there is no transformation, you don't actually see anyone turn into a panther you Mm -hmm. don't really see much of a panther yeah and honestly there wasn't supposed to be there's a scene later on with a panther kind of mauling someone that wasn't initially in the film it was supposed to be left completely up to your mind um and you can take it interpret it whichever way you want Yes, and I and then that is almost painfully obvious i think because of the film that's happened to that point it's almost nakedly obvious that that that's that is the case, you yeah. know, that you just know, hey, that was a bridge too far. They needed a panther. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was Val Luton's whole life because I agree with you. Yeah. One, and then this is a top probably fifteen horror film for me of all time, and I kind of came at it later in life too. But I had already known through like a documentary, I had already seen the pole scene and the bus scene before I'd even watched the movie, and with Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, where that kind of knew about the ending before I saw the movie, kind of ruined that for me. This didn't ruin this movie for me. So I agree with you that this is an all-time classic, and I love The Wolfman too, but this is much better than The Wolfman for me. But when we're talking about Val Luton, yeah, he was brought in to compete with Universal. They wanted him to compete head-to-head, especially with this film, and he wasn't really doing what the studio kind of wanted him to do. I'd he wasn't love to be the in the line. screening rooms. I'd love to be in the screening rooms when he showed them after... After giving these titles, particularly with Curse of the Cat People, I had just loved to see that. <laughs> well, that got him in. That kind of got him. Um, if I remember right, Curse of the Cat People was the one where they were like, finally, okay, you can go and do something that isn't horror for a couple films. And then, because <laughs> they were like, enough's enough. We'll see what you can do. And then, you're going to do it anyway. Yeah. So now, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Val Luton is a very interesting character. But the funny thing about that is the first film he produced is really his magnum opus, right? How often does yeah, that happen yeah. where your first film is your absolute best? 
Yeah, and and I'll be honest, I think a lot of his movies are very. I mean, again, he's the. How about the fact that we're talking about a producer, not a director? Exactly. Very <laughs> rarely. I mean, I love him. And I love the exhibitor by chance, but I don't think years from now we're talking about Jason Blum movies. You know no, what I mean? No, probably not. Uh, maybe you mentioned these movies are made by Blumhouse. Blumhouse, yeah. The fact that we talk about Val Luton, and these are great directors. I mean, uh, the director of this film goes on to direct The Curse of the Demon, which is a fantastic yep. film. Yep. Uh, and, of course, Robert Wise directed Curse of the Cat People, goes on to direct, you know, everything. Yeah, The Haunting, The Sound of <laughs> the haunting, Music, right? The Sound of Music, uh, West Side Story, yep. Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, on and on. Mm-hmm. But these... He's a producer we're talking yeah. about, but his 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 thumbprint was on these movies so indelibly that we they're they're Val Luton films, and they and you can tell it because look you you can't watch one of them without seeing it, without right. seeing that 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 fingerprint, and it's here all over the film. And I think that what's great is this film establishes what a Val Luton movie is. You don't need two or three movies. When you see I Walked with a Zombie, which is also a classic, I think in the Body Snatcher. What he's doing in those films, he develops here, and he creates some. I think he create he creates a a kind of chase scene here in this film that he refines across his career. That I think leads up to the slashers that we know. You know, I think yeah, what Val Luton is doing in the Cat People eventually becomes what we see in Halloween. Yeah, well, for you my know, money, Nathan, I had talked about in. Um, the Leopard Man, which is kind of a disjointed yes. film, but the very it's kind of the first depiction in a horror film of like a serial killer. I, it's almost a proto slasher. I I, yeah. I had mentioned that. I think I had reviewed the movie years ago with Bill on like an underrated episode. And when I was hearing you talk about it, I was like, yeah, right on. Preach <laughs> it, Trey. I, I think you're right on about that. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And he like you said, he fostered Jacques Turner. He uh, fostered. Um, Robert Wise, and also he revitalized Boris Karloff's career. Oh yeah, and that's I mean, a fantastic movie. But yeah, so anyway, I guess we are talking <laughs> the cat people. Yeah, um, <laughs> for me, you know what's those two scenes you mentioned are amazing. The the pool scene and mm-hmm. the uh, the scene we could we could sit here and literally, I think you could have a podcast on those two sequences alone. Yeah, and how influential not run out of information really. to talk about. And, and how effective they are still. The mm-hmm. the fact that he has a jump scare in this movie that uh, that comes at the end of that chase scene, but it's a jump scare built out of, you know, it's maybe one of the, the first and best. In this, it's funny because it's only the cat would not be a relief in this film, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Dave so, Becker's f- least favorite thing in a film was if, if it's only the cat you're getting mauled <laughs> yeah so in this case in this case it's only the bus is a much better sort of um and i feel like years later i a, a film a denzel washington's film gregory hoblet did a movie called fallen where he he uses a, a soda can to punctuate a scene like a soda coming out of a soda machine as the jump scare and i thought that's val luton that's val yep. luton right there that's the luton um, bus is what they called it affectionately the luton bus yeah and the luton bus or the luton trolley makes a, a cameo in the in the remake but yep. simone simon is uh-huh. what i think ultimately makes this movie so good that forget the pool and forget the chase scene she like dominates this movie by playing a woman who's you know for most of the time is demure and is, is seen as sort of uh shrinking and losing a sense of herself in this marriage because of this thing that she cannot consummate and i think that on the surface of this 
And I'm trying to remember exactly where you came down, Trey. When I remember listening to your episode, it was fantastic. And I love, by the way, kudos on opening your podcast with Val Luton. I was like, that's <laughs> that's a that's a move, uh, and it was a, it was a good one. I was immediately um, I was immediately into it. So I appreciate that. But the the thing is, on the surface, you know, you have the surface story where yes, she's worried she's going to turn to a panther when she has sex and intimacy with her husband, and on the face of the film. It very much looks like this is a movie about sexual repression, right? Mm -hmm. That it's about uh, also it's a it's a movie about the fear of female desire. What does a uh, what what should a woman want in this situation? And well, you know, she early on says to Ollie when she meets him, "You're my you know you're my first friend," and yeah. in a lot of ways, very he's her only friend. Yes, very innocent. But then it's not long for Ollie. He wants this other thing. <laughs> And because she can't give it to him, he says to his female coworker at one point, well, I never had any problems in my life until I married my wife and she wouldn't have sex with me. I guess being married to Simone Simon and having that with help from you would, you know, I guess it can make you cranky, but still comes off as a bit of a jerk. And, but I think it goes beyond that. And I don't know if you feel this way, that there is a definite sense of the other all through this movie that mm -hmm. Arena is the other and and you can't talk about these you know when coding is happening in these films even this early i mean look at james whale with the with the frankenstein films mm -hmm. that this coding that's happening uh you know we we can't talk about sex so it, it's not about whether she's going to have a climax or not it's whether or not she's going to turn into a panther but i think that it goes even beyond that in that the other here arena is specifically you know She's already an immigrant. She's already yep. and, and she's here and she's still figuring out how she fits in. And she doesn't know that many people. She's already a literal other. So they've already uh, in, to this to this community, in the society. So they've already given her something that distances her. And then we see that and that is made explicit time and time again. We see, you know, she she appreciates the foods from her culture. She has she talks about the mythology of her home of her homeland and her village and where she grew up. And it's so different. And you have scenes of, you know, of Ollie and Jane Randolph's character. Her name is, gave me Alice. Oh, Alice. Sorry, sitting yeah. there yeah. and they're talk, they're, they're kind of like mocking her while they're eating their American food. You know, there's just oh, yeah. a consistent, a consistent effort to show that she is an outsider, even in just that way. And then, of course, now she's also a wife who can't consummate her marriage. So she's now in her, even in this one little world that was just her and Ollie, she's now an outsider even within that. But I think it's it's useful to mention that, you know, we're talking about a movie that was made by a, a whole group of people, even though it's Val Luton, right? It's, it, it's mm -hmm. Val Luton's cat people. But then we talk about the director and how about the screenwriters? The screenwriters for this is where I started to kind of hone in because, um, and do you have that lit right there in front of you? The, the screenwriter for the cat people, uh, DeWitt Bodine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So DeWitt Bodine. Yes. And, and, and wrote several of them, but the screen, the screenwriter DeWitt Bodine was writing in Hollywood and was also gay. And mm -hmm. I think that the first time I saw this film, that was what came to the forefront, even even above all of the, you know, I think that the audience is, it's funny how you have layers, right? The audience is supposed to realize, oh, it's not about the Panther. It's about the the repression and that's happening 
in this relationship. And the effects of that oppression has is it ripples through their relationship. I think that part's obvious, not obvious, but it's it's the part that you're supposed to get and feel smart for getting, right? <laughs> the 1940s audience is supposed to be, yeah. aha, I get it. It's <laughs> not about the Panther. Uh, but I think that the other level even below that is the one that shows the other that this, I think, is a portrait for how a closeted person in the 1940s would have actually felt living in society or living in a society that is specifically aimed at not just being heterosexual, but making it known that heterosexual is the norm, right? That, mm-hmm. it's, that it's the not just the norm, but the only way. And then anything else is not just insufficient, but also wicked, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of cases. And this wickedness will rise up if you give way to your desire. So if you if you go to consummate the feelings you have, you are this terrible thing. And it goes back in can be traced back in so many ways because it's the idea that, okay, it's not just nor- norms that happen because this is how we live in our society, things that prevent society from crumbling, but now it's an extra level of sort of laws that are put in place that are that are just sort of manufactured and placed on Irena. There would you know, when she's just friends with Ollie, there's no expectation. But in order for her to have this relationship with him, he's going to move on eventually if he doesn't get to marry her and then have intimacy with her. And so in order for her to keep what she has, she's got to go to this other level that then sort of exposes her. I think there's a lot of scenes of the point of this. There's a scene when she talks about what happened in her village and this mythology. And you had mentioned, mm-hmm. hey, I'd like to see a movie about that. Yeah. It, which I think is drawn a lot from the short store or the novella that this is sort of yeah. based off of yeah. called uh, Ancient Sorceries. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the title of it. And it's a uh, it delves into a lot of that mythology and backstory. But when you're listening to her talk about it, it's interesting because she talks about how King John comes in and the, the Mardukes are the are, are the this group of people that come into her village and they are the force that sort of makes everyone begin to act wickedly. I believe mm-hmm. it's mentioned, you know, yep. that they're committing they atrocities. The yep. They corrupt them. They don't expect, mention what those uh, corruptions are or what they are, but just that they're wicked and that there is Satanism. She does mention, you know, that there mm-hmm. were people were worshiping Satan. Again, we see Satan and sin as this sort of forbidden thing that, that you would want. And then she talks about how King John comes in and he, he cleans it all up and, you know, destroys them essentially. But there's sadness in her voice telling this story. The way Simone Simon's character tells the, the story is different than what you're supposed to be getting on the surface level. But maybe what Ollie hears is, oh, we had this evil come up and don't worry, the king took care of it. I, it comes off as a, a tyrant exterminating a group of people to me mm-hmm. when I when I yeah. hear it. And I hear it presented. Yeah. And then there's the scene when she's at the dinner and the, the <laughs> lady comes in, who's interesting, gets cast in Curse of the Cat People in a kind of yeah. different role. But she comes, I assume it's a different role. I guess it could be the same person. She comes in, they make it, that lady looks like a cat because of her hair. But what she comes up and tells Irena, she says, she calls her sister, essentially. And that, but the way that scene happens, to me, that is kind of like, if if you're talking about a 1940s scenario, it's almost like one closeted person clocking another (laughs) closeted person. Yeah. And right off the bat, that's kind of the way it feels. And I think... As you track that through the film, as you see what, and then you bring in, you know, Professor Judd, who is trying <laughs> to work with her and 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 convince her that this cat people thing is all in her mind, and what are we going to do with you if you can't uh, 
it, again, it's what is the purpose here? What is what is Arena's delusion delusion initially hurting anyone except for the fact that she can't consummate her marriage with Ollie? And ultimately, that leads to well, we're going to put you away. We're going to mm-hmm. send you away from society. And so that's where my reading on it comes. Is I think there is a strong undercurrent of what a of a homosexual experience would have been like in the 1940s because it's it, it may be that arena just can't she can't consummate to ollie not because she's going to turn to a panther but because when if she faces her true emotions in this true situation then it's uh it's revealed to her that she doesn't belong mm-hmm. and another case could be made i i was reading that you know there are people that make the case that because Bubadine is writing this and he, as a gay man that he's also maybe putting himself in the role of arena a little bit. And so that you've got this woman that yes, if, if she consummates her love with Ollie, she is, you know, that, that doesn't show her as, as homosexual, but that he's sort of looking at this as okay. If he is to go forward and have this relationship with this, this man, then he becomes this thing. He becomes this, pariah within society that it is now sort of out for everybody to see yeah absolutely that's that's very well said nathan that's you dug so deep into that and uh yeah i that backstory i just love it and i love that their their team kind of their horror unit there just dug so deep and researched everything and i love that we're talking about you know they like to use in all their films a lot of their films even um, they set it in places that you're not very familiar with and with people from other cultures and things. And I love that back in the 40s, just to think about that. But yeah, and I, I did say that I wanted that that movie, but with my luck, it would turn out something like um, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island or something. And uh, <laughs> That's no. not so bad. <laughs> no, I love Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. I just <laughs> it's better than all the live action Scooby-Doos. <laughs> oh, it absolutely is. But yeah. um, I know what you mean, though, yeah. No, I think you're right that um, I think because this was originally supposed to be set in a, you know, in the time period that the novella or the short story, whatever it was, was set in. And Jacques Turner's like, no, it's not going to work. We're going to set that in New York City and in contemporary <laughs> times. So I think it, it works so well. It's such yeah. a great idea. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And the other thing is you had mentioned to me when we were kind of talking back and forth was how much of kind of a scumbag that Oliver is. And I don't think I realized it. I think I kind of felt sorry for all the characters the first time I watched this movie and then rewatching it um, these last couple of times. I just feel so bad for arena and I don't really care about the other <laughs> characters as much because they're kind of jerks. Yeah, for sure. And I, and, and I don't think necessarily that Ali is a scumbag. I think that's what's kind of a very cool and nuanced about the film is he comes off as an incidental a-hole. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> meaning that his head is so far up his own butt that he and his own desires, and also just in, but he lives in a time frame where that's kind of fine and normal, right? Like, yeah, it's you know, Ollie's Ollie's the man. He's been doing everything right. He's gentle and careful with Arena to a point, and but then it's like once it's clear that Arena, no matter what he does, no matter how good a husband he is. That Rain is not going to give him the thing he wants. I mean, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump place Rain to put her in a in a hospital <laughs> yeah. somewhere, and or, or before that to just kind of cast her by the side and and get divorced. Now there is, I think, an element where you get the feeling that Ollie, in a lot of ways, too, has jumped into this without really understanding. He's sort of swept up in Arena. The very things that make her an other and feeling like an outcast and an outsider are also in, 
initially intriguing to him. And I think that's what's so good about the casting of Simone Simon is she does come off as kind of timid, but she also has that sultry element. You know, you can kind of see not to, you know, like she. <laughs> Hey, she's a panther in bed. I mean, that's <laughs> apparently literally. Uh, you get that feeling that there is something exotic about her that would entice him to her. And I think that's why she, and, and when she does become a little bit more aggressive in her stalking of Alice and things like that, like I think you see, she's able to play those facets of the character so well that you can see that Ollie has sort of just jumped into this too without thinking much about it. So I think there is sympathy for him. I think that sympathy ebbs as the film goes along, mm-hmm. and I think it really dissipates almost completely for me when we get the curse of the cat people. I think yeah. that's where I'm completely done with him, although I give Luton credit for following through and, and, and showing that Ollie's not the man that was likely to change after, <laughs> after seeing that his ex-wife turned into a literal panther. He still doesn't. Not, no. not much has changed for him <laughs> a whole no. time later. No, maybe scumbag was a little too strong of a word because, yeah. Unfortunately, I think typical man of the 40s is maybe. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It seems like much more of like something that would be very standard for the time. And it is like their relationship at first is very innocent and it's very like they are friends. And yeah, I know we probably Oliver's probably thinking something else in the back of his head. Sure. But um, he is patient with her up to an extent. But then it's like well, I've got to either divorce her or, or if she's criminally insane, she's got to go into a home. So, And they got to do it in the right order. Yeah, you can't you can't divorce someone who's ruled insane or something like that. So, yeah, you're you're right. As the film goes on, it gets worse. I think we talked about the scene where he's like, oh, these ships won't. It's Alice and Arena and Oliver and they're at like a ship museum. And he's like, oh, these won't interest you. Go wait in the lobby. Alice and I are going to take a look. <laughs> it's just yeah and at this point it's almost clear that he and alice like they know they've they, they're interested in one another and so there's this behavior that it's just very uh it's very off-putting i think but i think that the performances i mean ken smith's performance is very good uh, yes. as does jane randolph's as alice like they're all very good performances and um and like we mentioned dr judd like i I could see a version of this like called the Guillermo del Toro remake where Judd's character is is adapted a little bit more, maybe made a little bit less of a of a sex pest than he appears to be as the <laughs> film goes on. But I think that there's an there's an interesting um you could turn that triangle into a square. Yeah. With a little bit more development of that character. I think he's very interesting. Yes. And again, I think I said Bradley Cooper would be the choice, right? Yeah. <laughs> cast him. He's this kind of creepy therapist that you think you th- he you you get the feeling that maybe he sees Arena for who she truly is, and then you get maybe that that's not the case. But I think yeah. the last thing I'd like to say is I I think that where the film ultimately goes and the last sequences and the last thing that Arena does is very important to the her to the understanding of the story. I think it also puts a very sort of interesting and and stark point at the end of that sentence if you're thinking of this as a statement on closeted homosexuality you know what that final action that arena takes in this film and i think it's important to keep that in mind when you look at the 82 cat people because to me Mm -hmm. that's where the starkest difference occurs yeah and we'll go we can go ahead and kind of shift into that one because really i think there's no point in us talking because we already both said this was in like our top you know 10 15 of all time so i think we both would recommend it if you haven't seen it please go check it out and watch it with Curse of the Cat People. Great, great follow. Yeah, great movie. Not necessarily horror, 
but there are horror moments for sure. And yeah, you get to see um, Robert Wise before the haunting. And what I would say about it is it's actually refreshing to see it not as a horror film and to see a movie that is thematically a sequel, but not uh, or no, maybe maybe it's better to say it's like, you know, it's it's yeah, it, it, the themes are a sequel, but the the story and content are not a sequel. So I think I would right. it's better than watching another movie where someone is afraid they're going to turn into a cat. You know, that's exactly that's a genius way to have a sequel where they have to deal with the same sorts of issues, but in a completely different reference point. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I can go. Uh, I guess I, I guess I'll go ahead and get into a synopsis for for 82 since it's a little different. After years of separation, Arena and her minister brother, Paul, reunite in New Orleans in this erotic tale of the supernatural. Very important distinction there. When zoologists capture a wild panther, Arena is drawn to the cat and the zoo curator is drawn to her. So I'm going to go ahead and stop it there. Let's let's just keep the synopsis brief. But I think that gives us a good setup. And this was directed by Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader yep. mm-hmm. in 1982. And it comes in a great deal longer than the original to make room for sister brother stuff. And <laughs> yeah, let us uh, let me go ahead. And before we get into a couple questions, I want to set up first. A couple of notes about like the production. First, Wilbur Stark was the executive producer on this. And he's an important figure because he would he'll also come up in my next episode. Um, he was kind of notorious for buying these old films, especially RKO films, and buying the remake rights to those and kind of shopping them out to different uh, distributors and studios. So um, and that would include probably his biggest grab was the thing from another world, which he picked up. Um, and I'll get into that story again on my on my next episode. This also went through several early scripts, including two versions that were written by Bob Clark. In one version, <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting to think about, right? In one version, the Malcolm McDowell character was a woman. This was nixed, though, because they thought that it would be sexist to destroy a sexually aggressive woman. Um, that's kind of the production notes that I found on this thing, as far as like why we were getting into remaking this. So I have a question, and yeah. I don't know if you know the answer to it regarding that. Were they were they still having a relationship together? I don't know. It didn't get into it. That's the problem with a lot of these early scripts. And I was finding that with Val Luton stuff, I'm too. I'm curious about that yeah. because that would certainly reinforce would it be what we were two, just talking about. Yeah, would it be about? two yeah. women instead of, like, sisters? Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe that wasn't in there at all. Maybe it was just two women. So I don't know. That would be very interesting to find out. That's the problem I found when I was going through Val Luton stuff is a lot of the times they'll give you a little bit and piece like, oh, this was in, somebody had said this, that this was initially in a script, but they don't go into very good detail about what how it would have yeah. looked as a whole. But what about this one, Nathan? Do you think that this this remake has its merits? I Yeah, I absolutely do. And I, beyond Natasha Kinski in the buff for an <laughs> extended period of time in this film, not Matilda May extended, but still, it's a lot, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it totally does. And I think, you know, what's so interesting about it is they create a film that does pay homage to Val Luton and, and takes some of his of his best scenes from that film, mm-hmm. incorporates them here, definitely does almost the shot for shot remake in some cases, in some cases mm-hmm. not. Not not the whole film, but in these individual sequences, like the pool scene, mm-hmm. but then injects those scenes and into a film that feels like it's kind of just again made from playing in the sandbox of 
his ideas, of, of Val Luton's ideas. And it, here's Paul Schrader, just like Herzog, a very distinctive kind of artist with his own already developed style that picks this up and says, let me see what I can do with it. It kind of matches what I'm interested in. And I think every change here, for the most part, uh, whether I like it more or less, creates a film that is as interesting as the original Cat People, I think. Uh, not, not, I'm not saying as good as the original Cat People, but mm-hmm. as interesting as the original Cat People, without repeating anything, really, that, that Val Luton was doing, uh, other, than the, other than those suspense scenes, which I think is meant to be, like, again, I think we have this question of, in 1982... Our people, there's no rabid fan base that's going to tear Paul Schrader's head off or no. maul him like a panther no. if he doesn't make <laughs> cat people identical. So his choice to make those scenes is a recognition, I think, is the recognition, the, the kind of bowing to the throne, if you will, the recognition that what Luton did in the original was worthy of of replication. And then he kind of takes that idea of the panthers and, and runs with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love so much that a lot of these 80s remakes just kind of take their own their own vision and kind of put their spin on it while still kind of giving some scenes that are kind of shot for shot still. I got a question for you, though. Do you think that Paul Schrader's the type of guy that would put out a fire with gasoline? <laughs> he might be. <laughs> I completely forgot about the David Bowie song. And I and I start I up, did as well. <laughs> I start up my Blu-ray and I'm like, oh, Yeah. I had just watched The Hunger like a day before, <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, this fits in perfectly. Yeah, but no, I do. So we've been kind of, I've kind of been letting you just jump in, Nathan, for these, but I want to kind of give you a couple prompts here that I've been thinking about and want to want to know maybe one less serious and then a couple more that are kind of a little deeper. First of all, I was, when I was looking up material for this film, I saw the word werecat thrown around a lot. What are your thoughts on that term? <laughs> I <laughs> it's better it's better than wear pussy I don't know. <laughs> feel free to cut that, that uh, wear so cat, it, well yeah i think though it's like yeah throwing the word wear in front of everything it technically should work but you know like when you get into it like wear giraffe and yeah. wear panda they just don't sound great wear cat is but i'm really what else would you call it like you yeah know, i know you, you get a uh, but where cat is a little bit, uh, I, I think that's what that that's interesting here. We never really have come up with a term for these cat like creatures. Right. So I, I don't know right. why we call them sleepwalkers later on in 1992, <laughs> but you know, um, so anyway, that was kind of throwaway, but I saw that everywhere when trying to describe like the, like Malcolm McDowell, McDowell's character and but on a little serious note. So I got a couple of things here. So we know from the beginning that Arena is kind of drawn to this panther before she knows, you know, what this panther really is. It kind of opens up this whole, like, your nature of the beast. Like, you're almost like you have this instinct, and you can't help it. You're drawn to this. You don't know what this cat is going to turn out to be. But she's just kind of drawn to this cat instinctively. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you kind of... Did you pick up on that, or did you kind of think about... Well, I think... I think that it ties into, I guess we can talk about this now. To answer your question, I think that it is also directly referencing the opening of this film, which is very, very strange Yes, uh, in the sense that it doesn't seem to take place 
at first doesn't seem to take place on our planet. It looks like it's taking place on Arrakis. But, uh, you know, you have this very <laughs> weird opening that is almost a little bit 2001, a little bit altered states uh, that seems to talk to an ancient prehistory. It quote unquote ancient sorceries happening where these people, this tribe of people are taking some of their women to this great tree that has panthers sitting in it and is mm-hmm. implied even in that opening as we hear david bowie music in the background that it that they are all that there's some sort of union that's being made between the panthers and the women and that that union is somehow also influencing and helping this this tribe of people that by the time we see kinski's character sort of not attracted but you know like her internal desire sort of aroused or 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 awakened as it, with this panther you i think that yes you're definitely getting that subtext of 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 the primal desire of it because this story can't really you know you're not going to shock anyone by saying oh she's afraid to have sex on her wedding night or something you know in a film like this we're yeah. a little bit beyond <laughs> that in 1982 so i think strader's got to go a little deeper but i think that the point you're seeing that thematically speaking and storytelling wise there's there's this feeling already we've already established that we've seen this prehistory and we know that it's going to play a part we know that panther is not just a panther i guess we could say so it's not like we're we're not watching a woman contemplate bestiality we don't know what we're watching exactly no i meant more of the fact that who the panther would turn out to be in her natural attraction i think that i did you know watching that i think that yeah you get the feeling that the panther i did think the panther was more than the panther i did think the panther was one of the creatures although i what's interesting is in this film in the other film because val luton and and uh, Torner play it with expectations for so long that you, there it, it's held out whether there is a panther or not a panther. So it's almost kind of strange to see up front mm-hmm. one of these characters as a panther before you see them as a human being. So I, I, I but I think, yeah. I think maybe also by this point we've seen so many werewolf sorts of films that you're kind of expecting that panther not to be a panther. How, how about you? Yeah, no, I, I had definitely didn't pick up this on the first time, but I'm thinking there is um. I'm like, she's given this panther the eyes and I'm just like, (laughs) she's kind of like, and we never thought about it when she's drawing it in, you know, like Central Park in the first, in the original film. But I'm just like, man, it seems like she's almost, and it kind of ties into this, something else I want to talk about. Do we really think she's in love with Oliver in this film? Or do you think she's, you know, all alone in this city? She's kind of scared. She's like maybe afraid of her true feelings and maybe trying to hide those. Do you think that's going in the right direction, Nathan? I think so. I don't think she's in love with Oliver in either one of the films. Not okay. in the not in the classical sense mm-hmm. of a freed up love that is of her own choosing. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what? I'll let you go. I'll let you go ahead, Nathan. What else you got on this film that you wanna you wanna get into? For <laughs> well, starters, yeah, for starters. So let's talk about some of the, like the surface level things up front, just about like the the production stuff. I think the movie looks great, mm-hmm. and I kind of love that what he does is he takes it out of new york and he and he moves this setting and he gives it a southern gothic feel right Mm -hmm. like it's kind of sultry sensibilities work out really well here i think what's interesting is the cat people and the desire the the decision to move it to new york gave luton all those great like steel towers and everything to work with here and then here you get to have a more folksy sort of setting and a setting that's dripping with a little bit more of that desire and that arousal that he's looking for. <laughs> I mean, Malcolm McDowell, they say he was a, what, what, he was a minister. Yeah. 
that the, the, I've never met a lot of ministers in my life. I've not met one quite as into the things that than Malcolm McDowell's it did seems like a weird cover to have because I assume it has to be a cover right like yeah it can't be the thing he really does yeah because there's one point where um his housekeeper says like oh he's at church don't worry about him or he's on a mission or something like that don't worry about him when he goes he's on a mission all right yeah hook up with his sister (laughs) yeah we might as well put that out there there's a lot of that There's a lot of that in this film. They don't hide that. I no, mean, once, no, that's pretty once we rough, know right? he's a panther, we know that, yeah. No, he's pretty aggressive um, with that. He is, yeah, a lot. This kind of takes it to the next level, though, as far as, like, from the 42 film, as far as uh, violence and the sexuality, this ramps it up to proverbial 11, right? Compared to the It original. does, and I think that, you know, I think that's one of the things that Strayer does right up front. He does make it a like a sexy intimate movie and and here's the thing about it is there's a lot of these films from the 80s and a lot of films you know the uh, uh we're talking about if you look at a movie like the fly and the remake of the fly or or even the movie the hunger i just mentioned where there's sex involved and yet the movies aren't necessarily sexy there's not a lot in the fly no that's particularly sexy no i find my find gina, <laughs> gina davis, davis and Goldblum but, in the early yeah it, or you know Goldblum in the early going before you know he starts like throwing up on donuts but like this movie i think is intended to be a like sexy thriller and i think it is like i think that it actually has some heat to it a movie like the hunger is almost there's there's sex happening but it's a certain coldness to it that that's not here in this movie and i think that's very different than the original film uh in that way obviously but like uh what uh, the other thing about it i think with the sex you also get a chance to ramp up the violence and uh like there's a scene here where someone gets their arm torn off that's oh yeah pretty graphic and kind of sudden and and a little shocking because i think the violence is meted out in such a way where you're not expecting always a person to be mauled no and then they're mauled and there's a scene where you see the aftermath in a bedroom oh yeah that is uh is intense and kind of horrifying i i thought that this movie has a great way of reminding you it's a horror movie once you've maybe kind of forgotten it a little bit (laughs) Yeah, and there's a pretty, if I I remember, I, I think it's been like a week now since I've watched this, but there's, I think there's a pretty graphic, like, panther autopsy that goes on and some pretty, a pretty crazy thing that goes on around that. There is, yeah, that's the moment when I thought, now we're watching David Cronenberg's Yeah, yeah <laughs> little body a, horror. That, is, that was creepy, that, but that's, that's a really cool scene, though, because I think there's the thing is, that's the difference between this film and the other one. It's all about suggestion in that other movie. The cat people aren't as important as what they are in Arena's mind. And here's a movie that's like, there's the cat people autopsy. Like, this is what the 80s was. It was about visceral and concrete. And I think he does all that. But what he still manages to do is he makes uh, gets to make a movie that talks about the same things, but in, in a different way. I don't know about the same things because I'm not sure that this movie, I don't know that this cat people is really a, is meant to be a statement on, on on homosexuality or its relationship to society at the time. I think this is maybe more about, you know, it's interesting. This movie's 1982. So I think if you're placing it, I, I'm, I was growing up, but I was a very little kid at this point. I did not see this movie <laughs> as a kid, but you know, my timeline's a little off there, but aren't we talking kind of post disco, right? You know, you're kind of mm-hmm. coming out of the swinging seventies, but you're right before AIDS, like just a little mm-hmm. bit before. And this movie's like kind of perfectly captured in the in the cradle of that, right? Like, yeah, there's a feeling of what, how far is too far? 
Or what will my desire yeah. do to me in the end? Yeah, or who gets to draw the line? Like, where do you stop? Yes. Where do you yes. draw the line? Where do you stop? And I, <laughs> you feel like that taboo that, you know, there's understanding of Schrader looking at the original film and you look at, okay, well, the homosexuality, you know, like there are still people who are going to find that taboo if you put it into a film in 82, but it's not that same level of taboo and you don't want to present it as the, you know, so he finds a taboo that like, is not going to be crossed, you know, we're not going, he, you get to that point where this is one, this is a taboo, but I think it's not done for titillation. It's done because no. he's, what he's done is he's created this door that if you want to have this thing, if you want to have this fulfillment, you can only have it by crossing through this door. So the ultimate, are you willing to cross this, this threshold here? And so he creates a similar problem, you know, it isn't, it isn't about Irene, uh, arena anymore being a, a situation like, Oh, well, all I have to do is, you know, not have sex with so-and-so over here. This is different. It's like, if you want the freedom of not being held down by this curse, this is the door. So in a way that the, the metaphor still works, if you want it to, to use it that way, because we've just created a, a different taboo, a different element. And we see these, but the question becomes, I think, are these characters drawn to one another for any other reason than that they are only compatible in this way. So it does ask mm -hmm. another question of, yeah, if you're compatible for sex, is that what I should be? Is that the ultimate concern here? Is that the ultimately, am I going to be happy if I find someone incompatible with sex? Where Schrader goes with the movie has a very weird conclusion, I think, that I, I don't necessarily want to spoil it, but it's almost impossible not to talk about it because the ending is a, a little bit crazy for me. I didn't quite expect it to go where it ultimately goes. Well, did you want to uh, do a quick little section maybe after we get through our other thoughts and talk about that ending? If you're good with putting it in there, yeah, I think so. Because yeah, we can I think give a little it, warning. And... It it really speaks to, and then, then we can share his quote about what he hit with the yeah. film. Schrader had an idea right off the bat, and I think that the ending ties directly into what he was trying to do. Yeah, a couple things. Before we get into that, a couple of things I was thinking, man, McDowell plays such a weird character in this movie, doesn't he? Especially that scene where he's like kind of up on the bed frame, like watching <laughs> her sleep. He, he, he does. You know what's so weird about this? I don't know if you felt this way. He this is a very weird performance, but I just he it kind of reminds me why I like Malcolm McDowell. Mm -hmm. He has a way of making a character be completely sinister, completely the bad guy, completely an a hole. I mean, he's all these things. Yeah. But he has a way of making you feel sympathetic for this guy at the same time. He's in the exact same boat as Irina to a degree. He And he wants to, to see it solved. He doesn't want to be like this. But he kind of keeps still messing around with it. <laughs> like It's like he, <laughs> he wants to resist it. But you get that almost feeling of someone who's compulsed towards it. And I think it would be interesting. What if this movie was just a little bit later? or Or is it precursoring anything when we talk of you know just a few years later when you have the panic that comes with aids you know that comes with this like that that charges this film quite a bit just in you know the difference of a couple years i think because i i don't know that schrader's necessarily is on his mind when he's making this film but you're getting that kind of vibe if i do this it's going to destroy this other person and he can't quite help himself like he seems i don't know what you felt but there is a scene when we see the aftermath of one of his encounters and he knows a hundred percent what's going to happen. And he seems legitimately, uh, I don't want to say broken, but he, he seems remorseful 
and 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 upset that it is happening, even though he has clearly yeah. done this multiple times. Are you talking about the one where like where he's talking about like the performance issues with the woman that he's with? Well, there's the lady he picks up at the funeral. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Happens there. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about that, but you're kind of right about Malcolm McDowell, right? And even when he's playing Alex in A Clockwork Orange, he's still there when it's kind of spiraling out of control. You do kind of feel sorry for the guy. Yeah. Even look, though he's look at how he plays Dr. Dr. Loomis in the two uh, oh, yeah. Halloween remakes. Like in the first one, he's a much more sympathetic Dr. Loomis. Mm-hmm. And he's almost a complete jerk in the second movie. He's playing the same character twice in two different, two different uh, iterations. And neither one is like, the Donald Pleasance Loomis. So I, I, I think he's a, I think he's an actor who's underrated a little bit because he's another guy. He works a lot. He's willing to do a lot of things. Not all of them are great, but I think he's a very talented guy. Absolutely. Anything else you want to kind of talk on, hit on about this film? One quick thing as a tie between this one, and the other one, uh, and that's to talk about Natasha Kinski in relation to Simone Simon. I mean, first off, I think you have this, obviously uh, of the Kinski's we've seen in movies, I, She's the better one to look at. <laughs> yeah. <the> movies over <laughs> here. <laughs> she does. She doesn't. She looks enough not like Klaus that I'm okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like yeah. uh, so between you know she, but she got the eyes. She's got the mm-hmm. eyes, and I think yep. that she has both of those actresses managed to give her the give them this otherworldly sense that you totally believe that these women could be a panther at some point. Mm-hmm. I think that's oh, such absolutely. a hard thing to do without it being forced or without them picking up an affectation, right? Like none of them, they're not darting their heads. They're not moving, but there's a way that Kinski is beyond just the way she looks. It's the same way with Simon. It's not just the way they look. It's the way they carry themselves and the mm-hmm. way they interact, but it isn't like they're not doing darting head movements. They're not crawling around. I mean, uh, Kinski's crawling around a few times, but like, <laughs> they're not. Um, it's done in such a way with a sense of grace that they embody it. It's not, like they're trying really hard to be cat-like because that would be horrible, right? Like that would be right. like if she if they were licking their hands or something. Or, oh, it'd be so you know, weird. Or, or, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But not quite that point. But you know, they're never trying to be cat-like. There's a certain sense where they carry themselves with an unearthly poise, is what. Yes. I, I think I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, you can see it. You can just see it in their face. Like sometimes this, that cover for cat people, the Criterion thing. Simon just looks yes. like a cat. Like she looks like she's got cat yes. features all over. And yeah, on board with that 100%. Yeah. Okay. So is that all you kind of have before we want to dive into this? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I will give spoiler warning here and I'll give a little heads up when we're done, but we're just going to go into the ending of 1982's Cat People for a little bit. So if you have not seen it, uh, just skip forward a little bit and come back when you've finished the movie, Brian Scott. So <laughs> go <laughs> So go, go ahead, Nathan. Get us, lead us, Set us up this ending. Yeah, yeah. So the end. So once you've taken all of the drama and the kind of primary action with McDowell, so McDowell's character is now out of the picture, and Arena is essentially she's freed up to be with Ollie, who's played by John Hurt. I guess I should mention that mm-hmm. you know from uh, famously from Home Alone, but he she's freed up to be with him, and yet we also know that the you know she has the same exact curse as her brother. Uh, she is this creature. And now, as far as we're aware, we assume she's the only one. She's the last one. But I don't know that, you know, how how do you know that for certain? How can you be 100% certain? But there's this almost nihilistic feel that she's going to go ahead and she wants to have sex with Dolly. Now, I don't think necessarily that it's because she's deeply in love with him or anything like that. 
you get a feeling that it's almost a sort of act of defiance to say, okay, we're going, you know, let's go ahead and consummate this, but understand that after this, it's almost resign resignation, which I think is what we're seeing here. This is a resignation that I'm going to do this, and then I want to go back and be with those who are like me. Mm-hmm. Which, what does that mean? Who Who is like you? Like, do you mean other Panthers? Or do you mean <laughs> the shapeshifters? And so that's what happens. And at this point, too, they break out the ropes, which I oh, <laughs> had yeah. a chuckle at. <laughs> Man, you know, he's like tying her down. <laughs> to the bedpost, yeah. And to what's that going to do? What's that going to really do in the screen? I don't know. I think things, that's when like... you underline that, okay, is this really a movie about just kinky people? Is that the yeah. metaphor now? We're just into your kinks. Yeah. So... But yeah, yeah, he's, he's he's tying her down, and and you got the idea that they're they're going to consummate this, and then after this, it's then the ending because I think I don't know that I want to see him like necessarily take a crate over to South America and drop it down and let you know Arena out to run free, but I think that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, okay, yeah. you're going to go be with, and I wonder what Arena was thinking. What is what is what does she imagine happens after this? She says, "I want to be with my own people." I assume that she's going to just climb out a window and run off but instead we go to the zoo where it seems to clear that our ollie is uh, annette o'toole is the alice character here they seem to be hooked up and happy yeah and arena's in the cage <laughs> okay <laughs> she's in the cage and he is walking by with all the other patrons he's she's in the zoo her other kind are separated by concrete and metal and bricks and you know she's in a like what eight by ten space and they throw her some hay and the occasional like mouse. I mean, what, what what kind of existence is this? Has she been betrayed? What are we taking from this? And there's Ollie to walk by and just look at her longingly. And there's Arena behind bars. Well, doesn't he reach into the bars as well? He does. He does he, because like, the implication her her? is he can. Yeah, he's he's taking care of her. He's showing her some affection. She's been subdued. She has been she's been the very thing that the Arena from the '40s film would not allow she's herself been to become or could become. She has been. What or what is Schrader trying to do here? There is a quote. I think I sent it to you today, where he yeah. says, "Well, I wanted to make a movie where instead of hunting and killing the monster, the guy decides to." you know bleep it <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and then you know put it in a cage and and build a shrine to it and that's such a weird ending i don't think i expected it to go that way for one thing i didn't wasn't getting those vibes off this ollie character i think heard kind of plays him pretty straightforward i i don't know if yeah. you felt that way he does there's not it, there's not the level of the Kent Smith character where i think we're supposed to see a lot of variation he never comes off as sinister uh, or even particularly like deluded. It seems like he he's um, interested in her. He does desire her. He's aroused by her. But I do, you know, it just seems like a weird jump to get to that ending if we're supposed to buy it in the context of an actual sort of, you know, actual thing that happens in the well, there's story. A, there's a couple of jumps, right? Because we've got, like you're saying, they're kind of different characters than they are in 42 because we see Alice try to initiate a friendship with Arena. And then all of a sudden, it kind of feels like it jumps to where they're kind of at each other's throats almost. <laughs> um, and I didn't I didn't kind of pick up on that, but it's like, I get it. Like, you're being like romantic rivals, but I feel like there's a couple of little jumps of logic here that we don't necessarily see the progression for. I I agree. I think that's, and, and it's some of it's dreamlike and some of it just feels like a little choppy to me. That's where there is a little bit of clunkiness in this film that maybe isn't in 
the you know that isn't there in the original film i don't necessarily but i again i'm not sure that it's dreamlike it just seems kind of off it it leaves me a little dissatisfied not to say i think it's a bad film but i do think that 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 scene particularly is so strange that now uh but i guess it works thematically uh it's funny because irena wants to be part of you know she almost wants the irena of the 40s film wants to be domesticated in a sense she can't be you know she's yeah. forever on the outside of it and this arena just seems to resign herself to it yeah and experiences to gives herself over to this thing for whatever is on the other side of it because she just is, isn't going to do it anymore and i think that that's kind of crazy because i'm not sure that's the ending i was expecting you know i honestly expected her to maul him to death and just run out into the jungle <laughs> or the the i guess whatever jungle exists you know like yeah out into the forest it's yeah it's kind of bleak, but would it be any better if she's just kind of out in the wild roaming? I think so. Think I mean, so? I, th- I think so. I mean, she again, it's what she says. She says, I want to be with my own kind. She doesn't say, take me up and lock me up in the thing so I can stare <laughs> at you all day. No, 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 she does not. That's kind of, yeah, he betrays her for sure. And I think so. I don't know if it's meant to be read that way, but it's totally what seems to be happening. It's the, it, and again, if you read it in this way, that woman is this kind of sexual being, that the only way he can fully make sense of her is to lock her up and put her in a cage. Yeah. You can't keep a panther in the keep house. Keep her controlled. No, you cannot. <laughs> no, that's a very interesting point. And I'm glad you brought that quote to my attention because it just outlines perfectly how this film ends. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is that is that about all you want to say on that? As far as regards uh, yeah. to the ending? Okay, cool. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Spoilers so we'll, up. <laughs> yeah, we'll transition out of the spoilers now. So, all right. So, Nathan, what are your overall thoughts? I'm I'm sure we both have the same answer, but you, I'm assuming you prefer the 42 cat people to this one? I do. I, I definitely like the film better. I think it is a better movie. I think that this is a, it's a very interesting movie. It's also a good movie. Uh, do I think it's great? I think it's... I don't know that it quite arrives at greatness, but because I think there are a lot of things that are kind of wrong with it, uh, that it does have some issues, but I think that some of it has some of those issues because it's so ambitious mm-hmm. and it's hard to dislike a movie. That's a, this ambitious that's B this stylish. And then, then finally actually manages to be kind of like work at what it's trying to be. It's trying to be this kind of steamy, like erotic thriller. And it, it works at that level. It and does. it manages not to make the cat people absurd. It's two movies that take this concept of where cats, where kittens, <laughs> whatever you want to call them, <laughs> and and makes them compelling. I want to throw one last thing, which is that isn't it odd that we have this film and then Sleepwalkers, and I don't think it's a spoiler there because it's a basic setup, that you have uh, incestuous cat people, the last of their kind. Yeah, what are they trying to say about cats there? No. I don't know. I wonder if there's something behind all that. I don't know, but I just an odd like thing. Mythology type thing. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe just like a thing about maybe there are certain species of cats that do that. I don't really know about that, Nathan. That's a, I should have done my research question. ahead of yeah. time, but I, you know, didn't need that in my Google search. No, <laughs> probably wouldn't like the search results either. Exactly. But. Right. Not with all the furries out there. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm going to say one thing though, it is a takeaway for this. Yes. I prefer 1942 by a long shot. All four of these films we talked about tonight are absolutely worth your time watching. And I would recommend them to any horror fan. Really? I agree. Yeah. The originals are part of required viewing and the other ones are building out your kind of horror repertoire, right? 
making you a better horror person. Getting, getting kind of sing- all of it. They're all singular in their own way, which I yeah. think is astounding considering the two of these are remakes of the other films. Yeah, absolutely. I'll go ahead and give our poll results here. And this one, again, just a landslide. Cat People 1942 was 14 to 3 votes on Facebook and um, 64. It was a little closer on Twitter, 64 to 36%. But it seems like most of the times there's a general leaning that people towards tend to go towards. And it makes sense. Yeah, go ahead. The Nick. question for you, though, is Simone Simon or Natasha Kinski? I think for me personally, it's Simon. Um, I me too. Just because of the personality of her, and I think that would fit yeah. more with. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's where I'm going. That's a very good question, but yeah. So that's that's been kind of our general talk. Anything else you wanted to say before we give our plugs here and sign off? No, except that uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been great, uh, fun talking both of these movies and uh, it, it's i'm always up for talking uh, any of these films but yeah it was a great time yeah absolutely i enjoyed having you on it was fun to talk to you on uh, phantom galaxy and i appreciate you having me over there so we will have you back for sure so oh absolutely i think we might be having something a little bit in the works for some time in the future <laughs> speaking of though do you want to go ahead and give your plugs about phantom galaxy and where everyone can find you Sure. Yeah, you can find me over at uh, Phantom Galaxy. It's at podbean.com. And we have uh, where we talk about science fiction, fantasy, and horror. We're going to talk a little bit of everything. I've said many times it's kind of the Russian nesting doll of podcasts because uh, we have a generally my co host over there, Bill Van Vagel, and I, we do reviews of movies. We do reviews of uh, new movies, old movies. Uh, we also have. Uh, offshoots episodes that deal with animation where i have dave becker over there bill does one strange frequencies we have a new episode coming out about love songs we specifically talk about music and film there and uh, we've got one coming up soon with uh that's going to deal with books so we talk a little bit of everything over there we also have a facebook group that i would recommend checking out it's an on facebook phantom galaxy we're phantom galaxy at twitter as well come on over join in it's a lot of fun a lot of great people sharing over there. Uh, Trey, you, you've shared as well. You, some of your polls were over there too with uh, uh, for the films. And it's just a, it's a, I think we've we've uh, got a lot of great communities out there on Facebook. That yeah, come check them out. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't checked out Nathan's podcast, you haven't checked out Phantom Galaxy. There's so much variety over there, and there really is something for everyone. So go check out an episode of that. You can really start anywhere. If something interests you, just check it out. Give it a. And I tell you about the Facebook groups is I was off of Facebook for so long, Nathan. And then I kind of got drugged back into that land of the creeps Facebook group. And then I'm like, oh, there's a group for pretty much all of the podcasts that I love. <laughs> so uh, that's been fun to to get in there and interact. So as far as my plugs, you can find me over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. Uh, you can send an email at Screaming Through the Ages at Yahoo.com. Uh, the website where I host all the episodes is ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. We're on all major podcasting platforms and i would really appreciate it if you could if you're enjoying the show give us a rating spread the word and i've also got a newly minted facebook group over there uh screaming through the ages facebook group and yeah i think that's i think that's about it as far as my plugs but again really appreciate having nathan on and next time i will be doing this broad overview of some of the remakes that I missed in this period that I did not talk about with someone and going into like their production history of why the remakes came about. So we'll be talking um, House of Wax, be talking 
The Thing, The Fly, Invaders from Mars, Night of the Living Dead, and I think I cover 93 Body Snatchers a little bit, too. I plan on talking about that for a little bit. So that's going to be a jam-packed episode, but hope you'll come out for that. And until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>